1976, Christian philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer published a book titled, How Should We Then Live? The subtitle was The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. In that book, he pondered the fate of declining Western culture. And we wonder now, has Schaeffer's fears, have they come true? Let's talk about that today on the ILBA podcast. Greetings, friend. I'm Rusty Rabin, and we're recording this podcast less than two weeks before the 2020 presidential election. So we don't know the outcome, but to hear many Christians and Christian leaders talk, a Biden-Harris victory and or Democrats gaining a majority in the U.S. Senate would spell the end of freedom of religion for Christians and increase the attack on those who hold conservative beliefs and values. Well, as always, T.M. Moore, the principal of the Fellowship of Ilba, is here. And T.M., we welcome back Dr. Glenn Sunshine to give us some more insight into the culture that we've been called to live in and also reach for Christ. We're glad that Glenn is here, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, and probably one of the persons who has the keenest and most expansive understanding of Christian worldview in our day, a professor at Central Connecticut, but also a faculty member in the Colson Fellows Program, a brother in the Fellowship of Alba. Glenn, we're glad that you're here. A lot of things to talk about. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, I, I, I've often said, and I think others have said that too, at least since Schaefer's time, that Christians today really do lack a view of the Christian life that embraces the whole world as well, like your website says, quoting from Kuiper, every square inch belongs to Christ and everything in it, every occupation, every relationship, role, responsibility, all of this can belong to us as Christians in ways to serve Jesus Christ. So you wrote, without a supernatural worldview, Satan will eat our lunch. What, what do you mean by that? Well, we have to remember that as we are looking at the world around us, it's really easy for us to think about the people around us as the enemy. And that's really not the way we should be thinking biblically. The enemy is Satan. And the battle that we're in is not with flesh and blood. It's, it's a spiritual battle. How do, we see, how do we see through all of the stuff of our times to realize that? I mean, how do we keep that in mind? The scriptures tell us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. But what we see is the thing that always distracts us from the larger issue. And that's, that's a big part of the Christian worldview that doesn't often get included when you read books and things about worldview, is this larger scene. How do we, how do we keep that in our focus, Glenn? I think it begins with rethinking how we view the people we consider our opponents. Um, I would suggest that the right analogy we ought to use for the people that are, uh, are opposing us is the Stockholm Syndrome. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, it, it, prisoners of war, people who are kidnapped, whatever, frequently will adopt the views, the values, the program, the agenda of their captors. It's known as the Stockholm Syndrome. When I was growing up, I became aware of it because of Patty Hearst, who was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. 
for me, quote unquote, and then proceeded to get involved in bank robberies with them because she got she bought into the the outlook of her captors. It's a psychological defense mechanism. We need to think about our opponents as people who are suffering from the Stockholm syndrome. They have been captured by the enemy, by the real enemy, and they have bought into the enemy's agenda and are acting out on that. They are not, in fact, our enemies. They are the people we are supposed to be rescuing. Hmm. And if you begin, if, if you try to incorporate that or try to remember that, as you approach people in these highly polarized times, I think it will affect how you treat them, how you interact with them, and it will also remind you of where the real battle needs to be fought, which is at the level of prayer and spiritual warfare. Yeah, Can I jump in here? Yeah, go just, ahead, Rusty. Uh, because... I'm I'm thinking biblical worldview, supernatural worldview. Uh, For someone who's listening who might not really understand what that term or those terms mean, could you put a a, 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 hang a few things on that those terms to so that we understand what does it mean to have a biblical worldview or a supernatural worldview? Okay, let's start with biblical worldview. We can kind of distinguish between the two a bit. I would summarize a biblical worldview is understanding what the lordship of christ means in every area of life it's as simple as that a biblical worldview means understanding what the lordship of christ means in every and i underline the word every here every area of life that's essentially what we're talking about here now part of that is recognizing the world that we live in is much bigger than the world we see or can measure with scientific instruments. That the world of time exists within eternity. The physical world, or as I would prefer to use the creedal terms, the visible world exists within and is interpenetrated by the invisible world. Things that, if you want to use the terms physical and spiritual, you can go there. Things that happen in this world can be caused by invisible forces. They can be caused by spiritual forces, if you will. And things that we do in the physical in this world can in turn affect the invisible and spiritual. The two of them interpenetrate. And if we buy into the sort of common idea that people have, a lot of people have these days, that things that happen in the physical world must have purely and only physical causes. We are setting ourselves up for misunderstanding and failure and being outmaneuvered on a truly grand scale. In the, in the book of Acts, the unbelieving people in Thessalonica, observing their Christian neighbors, said this about them. These people who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and they are practicing another king and saying his name is Jesus. So there's something about practicing the unseen kingship of Jesus that ought to reach into this spiritual warfare aspect of Christian worldview, should it not? Oh, absolutely. And that, I think, is one of the things that is 
largely missing in pretty much all of the discussions I see within mainstream evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you have said, we're going to make three points here. We're picking up on things that you have said and written in the past. And, and one of which, and I think this relates directly to keeping this spiritual focus about the situation that we're in today and the need of the people who are our neighbors. They may not be aware of it, but we are aware of it. What they need is what we have, and that's Jesus. And so you have said we need to equip ourselves to be able to make the case for Jesus. When, when you say make the case for Jesus, Glenn, what does that entail? We don't, we don't all have to go out and get a PhD or anything like that, but what, what does it mean to make the case for Jesus? I'm going to actually go with uh, something Ravi Zacharias said. He, he said something to the effect of behind every question, there is a questioner. And that is, I think, the way you begin thinking about making a case. What you have to do is interact with people, get to know people, and get to know what it is that is standing in the way of them accepting Christ. Sometimes it's going to be, an, you know, when we talk about making a case, we usually think about it in terms of apologetics or an intellectual argument. But that's not, sometimes that's true. But that isn't always the case. Rather, making the case for Christ means addressing the areas that stand between that person and them coming to faith. Um, it can be intellectual, but it can be other things. It can but be. You're not, you're not talking about people like going to their local university and taking on the faculty or challenging the local newspaper. You're 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 asking people to just think about the people that you see in and out of every week of your life. This is your mission field. The Lord has sent you. Pray for these people. Try to get to know these people. Try to understand them and consider what does it take to make the case for Jesus with them. That's a combination. Seems to me. Uh, of both words and deeds, Glenn, would you agree? Absolutely. And that I think is is part of uh, this, the, the second point that we're going to bring up. But you, the best, <clears throat> excuse me, someone once said, and I don't know, I don't remember who this was, that uh, love is the ultimate apologetic. And we're not talking about some sort of um, fuzzy, romantic kind of notion of love here. We're talking about love that acts in concrete ways to meet the needs of the people around you. That's really functionally a biblical definition of the kind of love that we're supposed to have. It's supposed to be something that lives itself out in action, looking for the highest good of our neighbor. That is a critical part of advancing the kingdom of deprogramming people who have bought into the lies of the enemy. Yeah, Jesus said we should be witnesses. by our words. Yeah, we should be witnesses and not just go witnessing, right? Right, exactly. And uh, so, you know, I, I would argue that those two things go together, you know, if you're going to be effective. It's interesting. If you read in Matthew 9 to Matthew 10 and then over to Luke 10, What you see is that when Jesus looks at the world around him, this is a summary of his Galilean ministry, the first part of it, it says, um, he had compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
That, it seems to me, is a good description of the people I know and I see around me in the world today. We're, no, we're really no different from it. And Jesus' response is interesting. He tells the apostles that there is a harvest that is ripe, that's ready to go. Whenever Jesus evaluates the world around him, he always sees a harvest ready. But he tells them that we need more workers and that they should pray that God would send them. So what that implies, it doesn't state it directly, but what it implies is that to Jesus, the solution to a world full of harassed and helpless people is the kingdom. That's the solution. It's not politics. It's not who wins the next election. It's not the Supreme Court. It's none of those things. The solution is the kingdom. And what we need then are workers to go out into the kingdom. When you look at the instructions then that Jesus gives to the 12 right after this in Matthew 10 or in Luke 10 with the 70, what you see happening is Jesus basically tells them, your mission is show and tell. Show them what the kingdom looks like by what you do and tell them about it. You know, in, in their case, it's healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, casting out demons. It could be just as, uh, just as much going to your neighbor who's a shut-in and saying, hey, can I get, your gross, buy some, get you some groceries? You know, can I run some errands for you? Can I make you dinner? That's, that's just as much showing the reality of the kingdom as the other things are. But we are inclined to get uh, deceived. Is that a, maybe a fair word by our real enemy into putting other things ahead of that demonstrating the kingdom? We put the politics and other things, and I'm talking about Christians, right. ahead of what you just described as show and tell the kingdom. Right, yeah, and that, that's why we have to begin by remembering that this is first and foremost a spiritual war. Mm. You know, if, if we forget that, we are going to make the mistake of trying to fight a spiritual war with political or physical weapons and you know cultural weapons, those kinds of things. And while that's got its place, it's really secondary. You are listening to the Alba podcast with your host, T.M. Moore, the principal of the Fellowship of Alba, and our guest again today, Dr. Glenn Sunshine. Uh, we'll be back and talk more with Dr. Glenn in just a moment, but our website, www.ilbe.org, A-I-L-B-E.org. On that website, you'll find abundant resources on developing a Christian worldview, uh, the Christian worldview like we're talking about today, and how to live that out, do the show and tell that Glenn was just talking about, right where we live. TM, you've written a short course for the Alba Seminary about developing that Christian worldview. It's called One in Twelve. Tell us about that. Well, I used to say for years and years that everything I know, I can teach in 12 diagrams. And, and finally, somebody, I think, it, Glenn, it was somebody in the Centurions program said, hey, put up or shut up. <laughs> you know, and, and so that's when I started thinking about, can you really do that? Can you come up with 12 diagrams that will that will hold or cover or communicate everything you know, or at least give you a framework for it. And that's what this course is about. It's one worldview. It's this biblical worldview, this supernatural worldview that Glenn's talking about, which I try to communicate in 12 simple diagrams that can be easily reproduced and used to teach others. And so it goes everywhere from 
the framework of the kingdom within which this occurs and the times in which we are seeking the kingdom of God and building the church of God, all the way down to what's going on in our souls, how do we map out our personal mission field, what makes for a healthy growing church, and how does all of that impact the culture of which we are a part, so that it starts with the Lord's work of bringing his kingdom into our lives and through us into the world, and that's the whole thrust of this course. And, you know, it's, it's free. Anybody can take it. All you have to do is go to the website, www.ilba.org, and click on the word seminary in the upper, in the upper bar. And at the seminary, register at the seminary, enroll for the course called 1 in 12, and, and see if it's true. Can I really teach everything I know in 12 diagrams? Well, that has to be shown. Uh, and, uh, um, if I can interrupt, I've sure. seen some of TM's diagrams, and I have never seen anybody who is able to put as much content into a single simple picture as TM is. <laughs> and, and uh, without I'm, having seen his 12 diagrams here, I want to give an endorsement of it unseen because <laughs> really into that. Thank you, well, man. I'll endorse it seen because I'm actually working through the course, and you're exactly right, Glenn. Uh, one in 12 at our website, along with lots of other resources. So many things absolutely free of charge to help in spiritual growth in ministry. Uh, www.ailbe.org. Well, Glenn, you, I want to come back to that point that we finished up on before the break there when we're talking about that the witness that we bring when we're making the case for Christ, we, we really have to sort of lead with our lives. That, that, as Jesus said, that wisdom is justified by her children. If Jesus says wisdom, that wisdom is going to be seen in us. It's going to come across in, a, in the form of the reality of the spiritual life that bears fruit, exercises gifts, and loves our neighbors as ourselves. Talk, we don't talk about that in worldview. I mean, I've been reading worldview for 40 years, and we don't much talk about that in terms of the kind of people we need to be in promulgating and sustaining a Christian worldview. Can you say a little more about that? Well, I would argue that your worldview is revealed not by what you think or what you think you think, but by what you do, and specifically by what you do by default. I used to have a coach in college who, when we whined about not getting enough playing time. He would always say, boys, don't talk to me about not getting enough playing time. What you do speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. And if we were just doing more, we'd play more. That was the impression we got. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I just the last few years I've been thinking a lot about is that we regularly discuss, you know, what is a biblical worldview or what are the competing worldviews out there? One of the questions we don't ask is, what is the de facto worldview within the church? That's and an excellent question. That is, when you start analyzing it on the basis of your worldview is revealed by what you do by default, that is sobering. Because, now let me just explain what I mean by what we do by default. Sometimes we're in a situation where something comes up and we think about it, and we know what we should do, and we're not inclined to do it, but we do what we're supposed to do anyway, or whatever. What do you do, though, when a situation comes up, and you don't really think about it? How do you just respond? What's your, what's your instinctive sort of reaction? That's going to show what's really going on inside you. 
I'm what you, have you thought about that, Glenn? I mean, have you made any kind of diagnostics that you could put out there that might be helpful for us in reflecting on ourselves? Um, yeah, actually, I've, I've done a, a fair amount of work on that, uh, particularly within the evangelical church. I would say the two biggest pathologies that show up in a myriad of ways each are, first of all, anti-supernaturalism, which is kind of a weird thing to say about a Christian church. Yeah, that's incredible. There. Uh, and the other is secularism. Um, the idea that, uh, that it well, think about it like this. To most evangelicals in America, I think, what Christianity is, is a personal relationship with God. Okay, that's the way it's described. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. It's your personal relationship with God. It involves your personal salvation. Maybe it involves a certain amount of personal morality, the occasional hot-button issue like abortion, but mostly it's a, essentially a privatized faith. That's kind of God for me. Right. And one of the core definitions of secularism, there are a lot of them floating around out there, but one of the basic definitions of secularism is the idea, first of all, that religion and government should be separate. And I think we could affirm that. But from there, it goes quickly to religion is a private affair that plays no role in public life. Mm-hmm. And if your gospel is the gospel of personal salvation and not the gospel of the kingdom, you have bought into a secularized gospel. I remember Schaefer wrote, uh, we mentioned Schaefer, Francis Schaefer earlier, and he was asked by Christians in his generation, why, why, does, why isn't our faith more real? Why don't we realize more of this supernatural reality and this power of Jesus and this, all that's promised that goes with that. And Schaefer said, the reason why we, our faith is so unreal is because while we say we, mean, we believe one thing, we allow the spirit of the naturalism of the age to creep into our thinking unrecognized. It's that unrecognized thing that's so frightening, Glenn. That's part of the blinding work of spiritual forces of wickedness, isn't it? it absolutely. And that... that unconscious adoption of these views is what I'm trying to get at when I say, what are you doing by default? You know, what, what are the things that you're doing that you don't even realize you're doing that you've bought into either from the world or you bought into from scripture, which is it? You know, when you think about, uh, you know, anti-supernaturalism, I always point to prayer. How much does the average Christian pray? What percentage of a congregation shows up for prayer meetings? That's one simple example. Um, or uh, are your prayers specific enough so that you would even know if God answered them? I've heard a lot of prayers that are so general, you wouldn't know if God answered them. But you know, a lot of people, when you have this view of Christianity, what, what you want is something that when you're really into it, it makes you feel good, makes you yeah. happy, makes you glad that you're a Christian. But Jesus talked about Christianity in terms other than that. Not that he didn't promise us righteousness, peace, and joy, but he talked about dying to live and mm -hmm. taking up your cross. And he's, he said things that make it sound like realizing full and abundant Christian life is a costly thing. Right. That there is a price to be paid. There are sacrifices to be made. Talk about that a little bit, because that's your third point that you've been saying. This is a costly 
calling that we take up in the name of Jesus. Right. Yeah. Um, Jesus was very clear. Uh, Paul was very clear. You know, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, this is not a, a recipe for making you popular. Because among the other things, you have to speak unpleasant truths to people in love, but you have to speak the truth. You know, right now, when this is being aired, the results of the presidential election will be out. And here's the thing. Uh, as you pointed out, well, hopefully they'll be out. For all I know, they're, they'll still be doing vote counting in some places. But a lot of people really believe that if Biden wins, it's going to mean the end of Christianity in America. The problem with this is that in the first century, Christians were being fed to lions. And they went to the lions singing hymns. Mm. Mm. At the end of the day, what they knew and what they understood is that Jesus is Lord of all, which means that even their fates, however much they might not like what's happening, it's in Jesus's hands. And in the end, when you take the long view, in the end, we're going to win. So there's always reason to rejoice. There's always reason to give thanks and there's always reason to strap on your armor and go out to the battle one more day, right? Right, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, you can go out to the battle and you can get beaten up and all of that. And at the end of the day, you can still be rejoicing. That's right. You can still be thankful because, you know what? This wasn't a good day for me today, but God's still in charge. God's still in control. God's got my best interests at heart. It may not look like it right now, but I trust him. And if we are willing to pay the cost, there are no end of open doors of opportunity in our society today where Christians can venture a risky gesture of love in, in one or another arena. They, they may get their hands slapped. They may get looked at askance or with scorn, but if they can inject the lubricant of love into the hard places of our society, I, I just believe, Glenn, that over time, things can happen that will make the reality of Christ more palpable to the people in our society today. Which, again, is exactly what the early church did. Mm. Let, let me just ex ask you to expand on that just a little bit as we're drawing to a close here. But uh, you've said in, uh, in a lecture that you gave that part of this paying the price is that we should live lives of extravagant faithfulness. I, I really was drawn to that term, extravagant faithfulness. What are some of the ways we can do that? Well, again, uh, I used that originally in connection with the early church. You look at what the early church did. They had a very costly obedience, but they went to the lions singing hymns. They went to their neighbors in the midst of epidemic diseases that were killing people by the thousands or even tens of thousands, and they provided at least basic nursing care for them. They rescued infants that were being discarded uh, in infanticide. 
uh, on it, they, they fed the poor, whether Christian or not, they would feed the poor. Occasionally, they would even break the law by doing things like um, when a ship ran aground that was a slave ship, they would break onto the slave ship and free the slaves. And when they weren't doing that, they were going to the slave markets to buy slaves with their own money specifically so that they could set them free. You know, these are people who looked at the world around them and said, you know what? They're not living out the lordship of Christ. If they're not going to do it, I am. And they stepped out and they did it. And by doing that, it took them 300 years. But by doing that, they ended up ultimately transforming the Roman Empire. And, you know, this is something that has, was not limited to that time period. Right. We see the same thing in the example of Patrick and the Celtic revival. We see the same thing in great periods of revival throughout the course of church history that as bleak, as foreboding, as desperate as things can seem, when people step forward to live this costly faith, God does things. He does amazing and wonderful things that benefit not just the people who take the risk, but all the people whose lives they touch. And the glory of the Lord is made known. And people are filled with joy because of the salvation of Christ and because of the goodness of God. And we are seeing it currently in many parts of the world, Africa, big time, but South Asia, lots of places in Latin America and so on. This is not just ancient history. Mm. And this is our calling today as 21st century followers of Jesus Christ. Our guest again today on the ALBA podcast has been Dr. Glenn Sunshine. I haven't yet mentioned his website, www.e, the letter E, squareinch.com, e, squareinch.com. You'll see a number of his resources, writings, videos, and also things on uh, the ALBA website, www.ilba, A-I-L-B-E, Dot org. You can also find links on the bookstore page of our website to uh, uh, purchase some of uh, Dr. Glenn Sunshine's books. Well, as we close, as Glenn and TM have been encouraging us today, remember that no matter the outcome of any election, no matter what we read or hear in the news, there is no cause for fear. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, saying, As I have purposed, so shall it stand. And King David knew this, writing that the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Those words from Psalm 37. These are uncertain days, but also days filled with opportunity to speak about Christ and the hope we have in Him. Thanks again to Dr. Glenn Sunshine for his wisdom and insights today. I'm Rusty Rabin, and for TM Moore, thanks for listening to this episode of the Isle of Podcast. <music>